This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Great. And we are very excited because we have a guest today, Mr. Peter Atkins. Uh, you might know his name as the writer of Hellraiser 2, 3, and 4, and also as the creator of the Wishmaster franchise, uh, which both franchises near and dear to my heart. So very excited to be talking to you, Peter. Well, it's, it's great to be here, guys. Thank you very much for the invitation. That's, it's great. Uh, and our topic today is, um, well, for fans of the Hellraiser franchise, I think a lot of people might be uh, either very or at least slightly aware of the troubled history that Hellraiser 4 had that wound up being a uh, Alan Smithy directed film, sure, um, sure. which we can get into a little bit more uh, later as people aren't familiar with that term. But before we get into the saga of Hellraiser 4 and what did and uh, didn't happen, as this is relevant <laughs> to uh -huh. our podcast, why don't we just get your origin story, you know, where you came from, how you got into the business? Yeah. Uh well, first of all, I love the phrase origin story. That's, that's great. It's, uh, makes, I want to do the superhero pose. <laughs> yeah. and uh, Born on the mean streets of Liverpool, England, shortly after. <laughs> um, I was, I'm from a town called Liverpool, which people older than you guys know as the hometown of the Beatles. They I think were they a, still know. The Beatles are that famous. They were a little pop famous. combo yeah. in the 1960s. Um, <laughs> and 
And I guess I, I eventually became a member of the Senno Beatles, which would be Clive Barker, <laughs> Doug Bradley, me. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, I guess we'll say Ramsey Campbell as an honorary member. He wasn't involved with the Hellraiser movies, but he's a who's also from Liverpool. Uh, I, uh, a working class kid, um, like a lot of working class kids in the provinces, no real assumption that I could ever have, uh, you know, forgive the pretentious phrase, a life in the arts. Um except in rock and roll, because I think like most blue color neighborhoods or, or, or cities, somehow the, the, the sense of exclusion that you feel about high art, theater, novels, whatever, you don't feel about rock and roll. It's more like sport. You know, it's something that idiots can do. Um, <laughs> so my first venture was uh, like many people, I was in like abandoned high school and um I got in a fight with the drug. This is a very long-winded answer to your question. No, so no. Feel free to edit. Thing. It's a I podcast. Got- <laughs> you can talk forever. Sure. <laughs> I, I had a fight with the drummer who was my age in my year at school, uh, but we had a show coming up. So uh, I accosted a kid two years younger than me in the school corridor and said, Bickley, I hear you play drums. You're in my fucking band now. Um, and this is a guy called Graham Bickley, who actually went on to be a, a television star and a West End star years later. But after a while of Graham being in this terrible band, terrible band, um, he said, uh, you should meet my sister's mate, Clive. He's like you. He reads books. <laughs> and um, So a meeting was arranged and, uh, and I met Clive Barker, who was... I was 17, he was 20. We met in Allen Library. I met Doug Bradley the same day and uh, and joined the theatre company <laughs> uh, the same day. So we, we then pursued um, poverty and penury as a fringe theatre company for the next five, eight years, first in Liverpool, then in London, um, rehearsing shows for six months, performing them for two nights to audiences we outnumbered, you know, the classic story, yeah. um, but the but the payoff, the surprise payoff, was six or seven years later. Clive had um, they'd made Hellraiser, though Hellraiser hadn't been released, and I'd gone back to Liverpool, formed another band. This one, quite a good one, um, but I turned thirty, and I knew that uh, although you can remain a pop star if you're thirty, you can't really become one. <laughs> so I started writing. I wrote a few short stories. I think I'd made one sale. I'm not entirely sure I'd actually made the sale, but I'd submitted. Um, and then Clive, God bless him, uh, called me. He, I mean, he'd, he'd read some, obviously. <laughs> it wasn't entirely out of the blue. Uh, he saw that it, oh, it, oh, look, it's a sentence. Um, so he called me and said, Have you ever written a screenplay? And I said, no. And he said, a producer's going to call you in five minutes. He's going to ask you if you've ever written a screenplay. Will you lie? And I said, fuck yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, so five minutes later, Chris Figg called, who had produced, he was Clive's producing partner. They formed a small company called Film Futures, and they'd made Hellraiser with, uh, with American money, with New World's money. And Chris was looking for a writer for the sequel and Clive wanted to recommend me. I think he'd passed on to Chris some fiction I'd written. So again, Chris thought, well, he can write words. Um, actually, I, I always tell the story as if we fooled Chris. I mean, that, that, that really <laughs> isn't the case. Chris is a, it's a very smart guy and can't be fooled. Um, but because he's a smart guy and an enthusiastic guy, what he responds to most is smartness and enthusiasm in other people. Also, I had no idea how lucky I was. The pound, uh, the English currency, was so weak against the dollar at this particular moment in time that I owe my career to the failure of England's capital because it was so weak against the dollar that New World really weren't policing it. You know, it was like it was costing them nothing. So when Chris Fig called and said, I found this guy. We want him to write the sequel. I doubt he said he's never done anything but what the fuck. <laughs> but there's probably a polite version of that. And I, I have to assume New World looked at the exchange rate and thought, 
ah, what the hell? Yeah, you know, let's <laughs> let's let him hire this guy, and we can always uh, we can always replace him with a professional if uh, if necessary. So that's how I came on to write Hellraiser two, um, with obviously Doug Bradley was now Pinhead, and um, so it was my old friends Clive and Doug from the theatre company who I'd known for over a decade uh, by this point. Uh, and I guess I guess I did a reasonable enough job with number two that they uh, New World kept me on for number three, though New World themselves went bust before number three could be made. So it ended up a different Hellraiser three was made by a smaller company called Transatlantic. And I guess by then I was sort of entrenched as the guy who writes the Hellraiser sequels, all of which is a very long-winded way of saying. I had an easy in to Hellraiser 4 because I was kind of the default choice, like not necessarily the favorite choice, but it's like, yeah, that guy, he's done them. Um, <laughs> and Hellraiser 4 was the first one. Miramax had uh, picked up distribution rights for Hellraiser 3. Uh, and then I guess it had done well enough for them that they made an offer to the small company Transatlantic to actually take over you know, to, to own the franchise, to go into producing it themselves. Um, so they set up their little in-house horror label, which was called Dimension Pictures. I think Hellraiser 3 was the first Dimension film. I was just going to so, say... Oh, it I might have been short on 2, is it? I, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to say be... within... What were you going to say, Steve? No, I think he might be right. I think it is yeah. 3. I wasn't going to say that with any confidence, but then yeah, when you right. brought it up, I was like, I think that's right, though. I, yeah. Uh, I was um, going to, before we even get on to Hellraiser sure. 4, I was curious about 3, um, which was probably just the age I am. That might have been the first one I actually saw. Sure. Um, uh, I, you know, so I love the first three for all their own reasons, but I became aware as time went on that a lot of the people who are already fans of one and two thought three got a little kind of like Freddy Krueger influenced sure. in the tone. Sure. I was just curious though, if there was a point earlier in production when that was not the case. Well, obviously I'd like to say yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think it might be my fault. Um, there, was, there was no instruction from on high, uh, Certainly nobody said camp it up. Certainly nobody said make it funny. Um, I think we were, to be honest, we weren't analyzing. Well, I mean, you both know yourselves as, as professionals. We weren't really analyzing the thing at the time. It was like, in fact, when we were developing Hellraiser 3, Tony Randall, who directed number two, was still attached to direct. Um and the, the basic storyline of, of Hellraiser 3, as, as is, um, were, were, well, we can say the collision or the marriage, depending how uh, <laughs> generous you want to be in your interpretation, uh, it was either the collision or the marriage of a, a, an idea strand that Tony Randall, not Hickox, who ended up directing it, um, two Tonys, that's the difficulty, um, an idea strand of Tony Randall's, uh, was this decadent nightclub owner, collects esoteric art, picked up the Pillar of Souls, which we'd established at the end of Hellraiser 2. And I had this idea strand about a young female reporter who'd lost her dad in the Vietnam War. It shows how long ago the movie is that the hot young lead of, of a movie could have lost her dad in the Vietnam War, as, as opposed to Iraq or something. Um, <laughs> so and she's haunted in her dreams by dreams of war and dying fathers and all that heavy shit. And so uh, Tony and I had these two things and we suddenly thought, oh, let's not fight about this. If we put them together, we've got half a fucking movie. So mm -hmm. that's, um, so we certainly weren't thinking, how can we Freddy it up? Um, I guess by the time we were not, uh, the producer stabbed Tony Randall in the back. Imagine. Imagine that happening. <laughs> just fucking somebody. Ugh. Must be Never the only. heard of it. Um, but they brought on Tony Hickox uh, to direct at very short notice. Um, in my memory, it's like literally three weeks before production oh, was wow. It Might not be quite that bad, but it was something like that because they flew me out sort of as an emergency fix 
because they were bringing in a directive that had no part in the development of it. Um, and yeah, I get, yes, I was I was there just three weeks before we started shooting, so it was around that. I want to be very careful that I don't. There is no insult intended here because I love me a good B movie. Um, Tony Hickox has a flavor that is is more flourishy, commercial, fast-paced. So, although, I mean, he was stuck with a script that already existed, <laughs> so it's not like he could do a lot to, to uh, mess with it or change it. But I think that sort of high-energy um, commercial instinct uh, uh, that Tony, Tony H has, um, that probably nudged the movie further in... Uh, yeah, whatever direction you want to call that. I, I mean, the, kind the of Freddy directions. Are, I mean, I'm, I'm responsible big... for any crappy Freddy lines <laughs> that, that are in the movie. But oh, it has um, some great. I mean, three still has some all-time classic pinhead lines in well, it, though. It's, so. not, it's funnily enough, it's Doug's. The fans don't agree with him, but it's Doug's favorite of the franchise because. Um, well, it gets to do many scenes out of makeup, which, of course, well, and, you know, and that does add the him. interesting uh, pinhead backstory stuff with sure. the old soldier. Uh, no, I totally get what you're saying. And um, to what you're saying, I mean, I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Hickox anyway, sure. uh, I, but he is very much known for what I would even say is outright horror comedy. Waxworks, mm-hmm. the Bruce Campbell movie. Sundown, Sundown, Vampire oh, sure. Retreat. Vamp- you know. it's, it's got it's got such a formal subtitle. I know. Its tone. It makes me laugh. Sundown, the Vampire in Retreat, retreat. Yeah. which which is classy and beautiful. And um, then the movie is a laugh bonkers. riot. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's very great. funny. Great. Uh, I, like, I like his stuff too, and the the Mario Van Peebles Werewolf Cop full movie. Of yeah, I mean, I I'm, I was a fan of his too. So when I went into the movie, I knew what to expect. Yeah. And, and sure. I did enjoy it. And I still like it. I mean, because it, it is. Yeah, it's def- two is my favorite of all time. But I don't know. I still I still like it, though. I will and, say uh, having screened a triple feature of one, two and three, which Peter was at many, many years ago. <laughs> uh, it's it's actually it's kind of the perfect triple feature because the first one is sort of, you know, the the out of classy is the right word for Hellraiser. But, you know, it's kind of the artsiest one then sure. two is just like insane so that's kind of a great like oh i just got warmed up by the first one and right. if you're at a triple feature everyone knows by the third movie you're kind of getting like sleepy and loopy and so like the tone of the third one is, is almost ideal in that context pre-planned we <laughs> yeah. knew one day josh i always knew it three and um, we were ready for you it's uh it's bright well, it is interesting here. I mean, seriously, I would like to say, just oh. for the record, um, both Tony Randall and Tony Hickox, I, I got on so great with both of them. To this day, we're, um, actually, they don't know each other that well, but I am good friends with both of them still. Tony Hickox and I went on to do a lot of scripts together, wrote a lot of scripts together, and had, I, which you guys are familiar with, I'm sure, had, the, had that sort of side career where we would keep selling these things or getting <laughs> yeah. them optioned at least. <laughs> None of them got made until hideously 20, 20 years after our first sale of a script, somebody eventually made one of them. And it's. Do you not even want to say? Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to say because like, you know, my blog post at the time was, please don't watch my movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have a question for you later about yeah. one of the scripts you guys wrote together. Sure. <laughs> well, okay, we'll like, ask that. We'll at, ask that. At the end. But before we get to part four, really quick, I've always heard a rumor that part three at one point was supposed to take place in Egypt, but I know Clive Barker was going to do a version of The Mummy, so I don't know if you get um, I'll try and make this as fast as I can because it's very long and very boring, Steve. But um, (laughs) because of the collapse of... There were actually like five versions of Hellraiser 3, um, only two of which went to full screenplay form. Um, But... Yeah, they wanted New World wanted a three because you know two had done well. Um, Wait, I just I will just say you don't even need to rush through it. The people who listen to this podcast <laughs> love this shit. So. Okay, all right. so, so so it's we it it's the tiny pond, but the tiny pond we love and and like to swim in. It's, yeah. it's our people. Okay, fine. Um, 
well, then, then I'll relax and have a sip. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we were going to do a number three. Clive came up with, uh, at, at this point, the people, the people who were coming up with it were um, me, Clive, and Chris Figg. Um, Clive did pitch an Egyptian-themed idea. Um, he didn't get as far as a plot. It was just like um, pyramids, Egypt, Cenobite, uh, Pharaoh who's a Cenobite, uh, you know, the way you do, you know what it's like in the mm -hmm. room. You just throw shit out and see what uh, how people respond. And, and I liked it, and um, Chris liked it enough. And then, <laughs> and again, I'm sure you guys know what it's like. Either Clive got home that night and thought, well, fuck, now I've got to think of a story. <laughs> or... Um, for whatever reason, although Chris and I were both encouraging of that, he the next day he said, ah, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to do that. Pete, you come up with one. <laughs> so I came up with a different take, which was, um, well, I, I won't bore you with that take. But um, again, Chris liked it. Clive liked it. Um, what was it? <laughs> well, this was, I mean, it was, it, was, it was, we were still at this stage. Um, Okay, I'm going to trust you that your audience really are hardcore. <laughs> it's an unmade movie podcast. Oh, no, it's like right. me and the care about this stuff. The assumption was that the three, and it sounds unbelievable now, 30 years later, because Pinhead and Doug became so iconic. But the assumption, and very much Clive's wish, was that the through line character was going to be Julia. Um, obviously, I'd made her, you know, very primary villain in. Hellraiser 2. And the original ending of Hellraiser 2 was not the pillar of souls rising from the iconic bloody mattress. Uh, it was Julia as queen of hell. Um, not even that Cenobitic. You know, I, I think in the script I said she's in a black dress and she looks fabulous. And she sort of rises from the mattress and looks to the camera and says, and Julia, love me or something. And then Leviathan shit would pour out of her mouth, hooks and chains, <laughs> the, the end. And then two things happened. Um, one, Claire Higgins, brilliant actress, let us know that she really wasn't interested in being the female Freddy Krueger. She was, in fact, going to go and join the Royal Shakespeare Company and go on to a career winning many awards for her superb stage work. So there was that. And... Um, some canny bastard in the New World Marketing Department slapped Doug's face on the poster. Um, because oh, I should explain, Hellraiser hadn't even been released when I was writing Hellbound. Yeah, I was going to say. When we were doing the yeah. Julia ending, I knew Hellraiser was good, but the public hadn't seen it yet. Um, by the time they did see it, I mean, how, you know, that's the iconic face. That's the face. And you see, <laughs> you see that on 60 foot wide billboards all across America. And it's like, yeah, maybe not Julia. Um, <laughs> so why am I saying this? <laughs> oh, because, well, <laughs> because I guess we still hadn't heard from Claire at that point, early pitches for Hellraiser 3. We still hadn't heard from Claire that she wouldn't be that interested. And we still hadn't got the numbers on, on Pinhead's popularity with the thing. So my take, after the Egyptian take, my take was um, I've never had to logline this since. So <laughs> give the clumsy pitch. Um, there's, a, there's a sect in London. There's a cult, a new religion, and uh, it's called something, you know, Cenobity, I can't remember. It's not the Order of the Gash because that was Clive's original and it's not Church of the Sacred Wound because that's a Boy George song, but it was something like that. <laughs> and it, its charismatic leader was a woman called Lilith. And um, meanwhile, faceless corpses are showing up in the Thames. And um, we see Lilith at her dressing table and she pulls out a drawer and there are several faces in it. And she takes off her face and selects another. Anyway, the cop who's investigating it finds Lilith's fingerprints, and much to his surprise, they turn out to be the fingerprints of Julia Cotton, previously blah, blah, blah. So in other words, it was a, it was a, it was like a Dr. Fibes take yeah. with Julia as, as Vincent Price supervising this um, uh, 
or like Dracula 72 or something, you know, I don't know, one of those. Both great that was movies. My, and they liked it yeah. enough, but I guess then we did find out that uh, Claire wasn't interested and Pinhead was the key. So that, so Clive had had a solo try. I'd had a solo try. Then, so we thought, well, okay, let's do what we did with Hellbound. Let's sit down, open a bottle of whiskey, and let's see what happens. So we came up with um, Pinhead Runs a Brothel which was the first take <laughs> to go to script because New World thought this was okay. Um, it was actually a story about a fallen priest who'd lost his faith or swapped his faith. Somehow the priest was running a bordello on the side. I can't remember how we made that work, but it sounded great at the time. And then when Pinhead was brought out of the cloning vat or whatever the fuck he did to bring him back. Um, <laughs> he immediately killed the priest, took over. You know, I'm taking over this operation. Um, so that one went to script. I actually did a couple of drafts of that. And we were, we were, you know, kind of soft prep, like not really pre-production, yeah. but soft prep. We were in a kind of soft prep at Pinewood. And uh, much to my delight, because uh, I, I was, you know, I'm prime generation for the Marvel age of comics. You know, I, I was like seven years old when, in 63, when Stan and Jack were, and Stan and Steve were cranking. So loved comics all my life. And um, suddenly here's Mike Plug, artist of Werewolf by Night, doing <laughs> storyboards for this version of Werewolf. Oh, Hell wow. Oh, my goodness. And I just throw that out as an anecdote because I was thrilled. Um and, you know, we were just about to move into real pre-production. Uh, Chris had booked the stages at Pinewood. Mike was there drawing them, uh, drawing the storyboards. And then New World went bust. So, so that went south. So that was the third one. Are wow. those storyboards still around somewhere? I don't know. I, I, I'm unfortunately not in touch with Mike Plug or his people. Um, wow. That would be great. That would be yeah. great. I That's like amazing. The thing, he did, like, the, he did the yeah. thing storyboards also, right? Am I mistaken? I oh, is that right? For oh, John yeah, Carpenter's I mean, the thing. wasn't the first time he'd, he'd done it. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, he, he's oh a pro. God. Amazing. Um, can you can you put that script out too for people to buy? <laughs> I want to read that so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, it, there's no relation whatsoever. I mean, it's literally a different movie uh, oh, for legal goodness. reasons. And again, you know, please... Edit as much of this shit out as you no, need I'm, to. What I'm, happened was New World went bust, and the various powers that be at New World divided the spoils. And a guy called Larry Cuppin, who had been basically legal affairs, I think he hadn't been a, a development executive. I, I'd never met him, for example, at that stage. Um, but he, part of his division of the spoils was he got the Hellraiser franchise. Don't know why, but he did. Um, and he had a small production company called Transatlantic. Um, he had the rights to the franchise, but, you know, because whatever lawyer was doing, whatever deal with whatever other lawyer, what he didn't have was the rights to that script. So <laughs> he wanted to make a Hellraiser 3 and he had the right to make a Hellraiser 3. He didn't have the rights to make that one. Uh, so there was there was a bit of a gap during which something else happened that I can't quite remember now. But um, at some point, Larry Coppin said, okay, I'm going to make Hellraiser 3. There was like a year, I think a year went by between the dying of that Hellraiser 3. And then Coppin, uh, Larry Coppin, again, we've got, like we had two Tony, we've got two Larrys. We had Larry Coppin and Larry Mortoff, who was the hands-on producer of Hellraiser 3 eventually. Um, but Larry Cuppin uh, had known Tony Randall because Tony had been a suit. Tony was a development executive at New World during Hellraiser, which is how Chris and Clive had come to know him and uh, given him his shot to direct Hellraiser 2. So uh, Larry K knew Tony R, <laughs> two Larrys, two Tonys. Um, and he called him and said, you did Hellraiser 2, do Hellraiser 3 for me. And um, it's a good job I'd made friends with Tony because Larry Coppin didn't know me from Adam. You know, I'm just some guy who wrote 
a movie for his former company. And Tony, God bless him, said, I'll do it, but you got to bring Pete back to write it because we'd really clicked. You know, we, we felt like a real creative team on, uh, on Hellbound. So Larry Coppin said, sure. Okay. So, why am I telling this story? Oh, <laughs> right. So this, no. <laughs> so that was when Tony and I came up with the version you know, the version that was made. Um, but that wasn't the end of it because <laughs> um, Larry Coppin, you know, because by this stage, Clive was a brand name. You know, it, it would be very useful to have Clive Barker Presents on the poster, he, even though he hadn't been involved in, this, like I say, a year had gone by. Clive was developing another project with Chris. We might have, maybe we shot Nightbreed already. I can't remember. Had we done You're Nightbreed? in Nightbreed, right? I'm, well, I'm on the cutting room floor. Oh, no. Yeah. You know why? Too fucking charismatic, man. <laughs> I, I pulled focus from the leads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, there's, uh, <laughs> there is... It might, you know, they did. Right, that but you was... got to be in the cabal cut, then, right? Well, then, or... yeah. Well, the, the problem is there were three cuts. There was the director's cut. There was the cabal cut they were doing, but I thought that got stopped. I don't know. Anyway, for, no, they restored one that's out on. They Blu-ray. restored one, but they were going to do an even. I don't even. Know. <laughs> I, I, I was a second unit director keep track. on the movie, so I was I was knocking around. I was hanging out Pinewood with the same crew that we used on Hellbound. I was a second unit director. There are actually three units. And Andy Armstrong did the action stuff. And I just shot a lot of Midian by day. <laughs> like <laughs> monsters go about their everyday business. Um, but uh, John Skip and Craig Spector, who are horror legends in their own right, the, you, know, ba- you know, two of the three fathers of Splatterpunk. Um, look it up, kids, if you don't know that phrase. <laughs> that was a big thing in 1989. Um, and Craig and John weirdly had been hired by Fango. They were not journalists. They were already, they'd had the first best-selling novel, but they were hired by Fangoria to cover the making of Nightbreed. So uh, I'd, I'd met them briefly one time in LA before this, but they came over and most of the time when I wasn't working on it, I was just hanging out with Craig and John, wandering them around. And uh, eventually, I guess Clive noticed that we were just, you know, not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So he said, why don't you get in the fucking makeup room? Go be bearded transvestites for me. <laughs> so um, so uh, John Skip, Craig Spector and me became the psycho slut sisters and were made up as bearded transvestite breed. And it's gold. It's gold, right? I can tell by your faces. Why the hell is this not in the movie? Also, I mean, uh, there's also a scene which I believe is in the resort, because it was cut from the theatrical. But Anne Bobby, the lead, is, is a fantastic singer. Um, and there's a nightclub scene where her character sings, um, in the and the audience obviously is just the crew in cowboy hats. You know, it's meant to be a country and western club. Um, there were some extras, but not many paid extras. It was mostly everybody who wasn't working that day put a fucking cowboy hat on and come and whoop and holler at Anne. And in whatever extended cut you can get, if you freeze frame enough, you can spot me in a cowboy hat. Nick Vince, the chatterer, Cenobite, in a cowboy hat, and Neil Gaiman in a cowboy oh, hat. Wow. Neil, Neil was a friend of mine. And, um, well, I mean, he was, he was also a friend of Nick's and a friend of, you know, <laughs> we, we were a little gang. Um, but somewhere in there, literally, you know, two frames worth, you can see the chatterer, me, and, and Neil. Amazing. Cowboy hats, <laughs> somewhere. That's pretty cool. Um, um, but I this have, story has got away from me, fellas. What, no, no, no. It's all good. before we get to. We're going to get to Hellraiser four, and this has to do with Hellraiser four. But sure. I found, I actually found this today in his magazine. Um, it said Transatlantic when they were still attached to Hellraiser four. 
they had an idea that it was going to be about the computer game industry. And, and at the ending of Hellraiser three, you know, you set up the skyscraper and then they said that it would, it would be the headquarters of a Game Boy type company and Super <laughs> Mario Pinhead will wreak sadistic what? havoc through video game consoles via wow. lawnmower man animated graphics. Did you do you know anything about this or is this just a <laughs> crazy? No, unfortunately, I do know something about that. Okay. <laughs> but what a bullet we dodged, huh? Yeah, wow. <laughs> every, um, every word in that was uh, I'm reading terrifying. from the article. is this this from a trade back then steve is this This is variety or hollywood reporter or something or from something called shivers magazine i have not oh yeah it's a uk like a uk fangoria shivers yeah do you know the magazine starburst that's absolutely Mm -hmm. okay well shivers was the spin-off you know starburst is ostensibly sci-fi and shivers was was the star log and this oh, is you're the thinking Fang- Starlog. Yeah, Star- no, 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 Star- is Starburst is the Starlog. And right. Shivers is the Fangoria. Yes, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I got no, you. No, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah, Larry, had, this is Larry Kay again. Um, he had, I don't know, he smelt money in, in video games. And I, I guess this, this is why we are grateful for the Weinstein brothers. Because they, I know it's a dicey thing to say these days, but Larry went for the quick money instead because Bob and Harvey said, after distributing Hellraiser 3, they said, we want to do it. We want to, you know, I'm not privy to the nature of their deal, whether it was a licensing deal or an outright sale, I I don't know. But um, suddenly Transatlantic were not involved with Hellraiser 4 at all. But Larry kept plugging away at that idea. And at one point, I think after, I know it was after Hellraiser 4, he, because again, you know, I got on personally with him just fine. Um, And he called me and asked me if I'd be interested in helping him develop a video game. And this is like 97, 98. To this day, I still don't know anything about video games, but I certainly (laughs) knew nothing about them. In 97, but I said, I don't know, sure. And partly, weirdly, uh, the reason I at least agreed to take a meeting and and pitch a few things with him was because he said his partner on it was a guy called Eric Gardner, who I knew was Todd Rundgren's manager. And again, it was I just thought, well, I'll get to meet Todd Rundgren's manager. I can probably scam some free tickets next time Todd did the whiskey. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So that was, and for seriously, for decades, Larry and Eric, and I quite speedily parted ways from that project. Um, but I know they did. They paid Doug at one point to come and green screen some, I say dialogue, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> some words. They paid him to come and say some words in front of a green screen because they were going to go and develop a, a video game. And, and I don't believe it ever happened, which, so it made me laugh when, although again, Larry had nothing to do with it. And I have to fess up, I, I really haven't seen the director video, Hellraiser sequels, uh, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, but one of, them, <laughs> one of them is a video game movie, right? I believe, I, obviously you guys haven't seen it either. Kind of. Uh, Hell World, isn't yeah, that? Yeah, the a- one with Lance Henriksen. Yeah, right. Has, yeah. A, has a video game element to it. Yeah. It, okay. That's a very weird movie. Because uh, I think, I think basically, they after part four, they kind of got into that weird thing where they were just taking scripts that Dimension already oh, had yeah. and oh, no, shoving but- Doug Bradley into like For two sure. scenes. So yeah. the mythology of those just gets insane. Yeah. Uh, I will say, though, I just want to make sure we don't miss out on a story. I think maybe right before we started talking about Nightbreed, you were saying there was one more phase of Hellraiser 3 right. before we got to the what we ended up seeing. Yes, because so. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was saying Clive had become a brand name. So, you know, they even though he'd gone off to do other things, Nightbreed among them, um, 
and wasn't involved in the creation of the story that Tony Randall and I came up with. Um, there was always this thought that, well, not to sound crass, but I, uh, this is how they think, as you know. <laughs> uh, it was like, well, if we pay him enough money, will he just let us put his name on it? You know, as, yeah. as we like to call it, the executive producer credits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or, or indeed, as it ended up, the presents credits, which mm-hmm. um, and which Wes Craven had on Wishmaster, on, on, not to on get Wishmaster, sidetracked. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, Wes showed up on set a couple of times. You know? <laughs> and actually, hey, if it helps sell the movie, that's uh, no shit. No, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, listen, I get my name on the same poster as Wes Craven. I'm I'm very happy. And also, seriously, um, Bob Kurtzman, who directed Wishmaster, um, Wes, he said because yeah, all again not privy to the nuts and bolts <laughs> of the deal. But, you know, they just paid him for his name. But because Bob had had prior history with Wes, he said Wes came in during post and was really, you know, not hands-on, like, taken over in any way, but was genuinely helpful to Bob in post and, and the editing process. So so this sounds like I'm saying he earned his money and Clive didn't, yeah. so don't <laughs> fucking quote me on that yeah. part. Um but, but at this stage, um, they couldn't come to terms. Now, I don't know, you know, again, not my business. Either Clive was asking too much or Larry wasn't offering enough. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But one of, one of them wasn't playing ball. So that wasn't going to happen. So we were going to go ahead with this. And then um, a random factor popped up, which was, funny that we mentioned them earlier, Steve, Fangoria, who later went back into the production business, had a brief little window there where they were in the production business. They formed Fangoria Films. And again, I don't know what the business side of it was, but I guess they threw some money at Larry and said, <laughs> Can we, uh, we want to be on board for... Um, for what would have, yeah, we're still talking about Hellraiser 3, right? I'm losing mm-hmm. track. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> came in. And, but then in the, weirdly, in a similar way, I guess because they'd actually paid real money, in the same way that the first version that went to script, Larry didn't have the rights to, even though he had the rights to the franchise. Somehow, well, we hadn't gone to script yet. I don't know. Fangoria said... No, we've got to have Clive's name. That's the brand name. So this really makes everybody sound so fucking venal, and I apologize. <laughs> you know, it's the way the business works. I guess Fangoria did offer Clive enough money, um, so or at least theoretically enough money. So he came back. So so that project died, the one that ended up being made, the um, Elliot Spencer, Joey the Reporter, and me, Tony, and Clive – Tony to direct it and the one wanted me to write it. Um, so then me, Tony, and Clive had to come up with the fifth version, which it was shit. It was, <laughs> it was like everybody was tired. And I, I was um Godfather, yeah, like a gangster, <laughs> like Romeo and Juliet <laughs> gangsters meet, but one of the gangsters with Pinhead there. I can't remember. We, we pitched it. You know, we did our best to, to say, it'll be great. Mm-hmm. And um, But that did not... I think that treatment stage, I think they commissioned a treatment from me, um, which was probably sufficient to kill it. You know, what the hell are you <laughs> going to do with that? Oh, yeah, gangsters. Gangsters and Pinhead. All right. Um, so... <laughs> So and then and then just like New World, Fangoria Pictures disappeared. They were back a year later making Children of the Night, which Tony Randall ended up directing for them. But you know how this shit. Yeah, they, they were out of the picture. So then Tony gets another call from Larry Coffin, who says, "Okay, now it's just us. We're going to make Hellraiser 3. And Tony said, "Oh, for fuck's sake, we can't come on." seventh take on this thing and he said don't be stupid i paid for that fucking script we're making that one 
And then in that final twist of uh, movie business, uh, having set the project up, having brought me back on board, having developed the story with me, Tony Randall was uh, stabbed in the back by Larry Mortoff. And um, which brings us back to the story we told earlier. Yeah. You should probably edit this to put that bit here, but maybe people are keeping track. I, I, think, I think this uh, helps establish the wild ride yes. that is the movie <laughs> right. business, really. Sure. <laughs> wow. Sure. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like... It is crazy. And well, um, yeah, but... Um, uh, but, you know, Hellraiser three was 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 a great experience. All the people I, I have such fond memories of um, of all the people, that, and I, I know that it's. Um, I think you know the, the first time I'd seen it for decades was when they asked me to do an audio commentary uh, about five years ago, maybe I guess for the Arrow box set. I'm not sure they don't send them me. You know, you don't fucking. <laughs> it's a great box set, um, by the way. So I hear, be nice. You know, I do them a commentary. Give me one. Um, but I realized when I was watching it that I, I really didn't need to apologize for the movie in any way because it probably isn't a great Hellraiser movie. If, if your template for what Hellraiser should feel like is Hellraiser 1 and 2, Hellraiser 3 is not a great Hellraiser movie. But having seen it after a gap of years, um, it's a really good 80s horror movie. You know, it's like I, I look at it and it's like, you know, that's that's good. That can stand up there with um, with all that fun stuff we were doing in the year. I mean, it's, it's very late 80s. I guess technically it was released in 91. So it's... yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, I, I feel that way it about feels a lot like of an 80s movie. franchise, like like new Wes Craven's New Nightmare. It's not a very good Freddy Krueger movie if what you really wanted was the rest of the franchise, but it's a super interesting movie all right. on its own. Yeah, right. it's it's a slick looking movie too. It doesn't look super cheap or anything. Like Part it looks, three, yeah, yeah, like it looks. I like the way oh, it looks. Like it yeah, looks, no, well, well, credit to, uh, to a DP that had worked with Tony before, Jerry Lively, another Englishman. Who um, production designer Steve Hardy and DP uh, Jerry Lively really you talk about bang for your buck? Yeah, it's um, it does look good, um, and you know it's the Image Animation team again, of course. So um, and we had a great looking cast, you know, beautiful young people: uh, Terry <laughs> Farrell, Paula Marshall, Kevin Bernard. Um, so and Tony has that kind of eye, you know, he's. Um, He's like sort of MTV generation director. He can, and he is um, indefatigable in terms of energy. I, I mean, th these days, because you're no longer working with film, um, getting through 60 setups in a day is, is it's still uncommon, but it's, it's not a big deal. But, um, you know, we were shooting on film and I, I think, he actually hit 60 setups in one day. Wow. Which, I, I mean, this is very inside baseball, I know, but um, but you guys would know it's like, that's working. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot of camera setups with 35mm yeah. film cameras. Um, and yeah, Tony, and also he wasn't big on coverage, which drove the producers crazy um, because I, I believe like Hitchcock, whether that's urban myth or not, He'd already cut the movie in his head. So he knew he didn't, I don't need a master shot here because I'm only going to be looking at Joey or, you know. Well, it's, so, his mom is a famous editor, right? Oh, God, yeah. And coach, yeah. Uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Arabia. Arabia, yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anne was a trip. And I <laughs> only met her in person once or twice. But we, as I say, Tony and I worked together a, a lot on things. So... Um, she she was still in London. Tony's back in London now, but he had a house. He bought Julian Lennon's house. So that's some family wow. money, isn't it? <laughs> um, that's that's the Lawrence of Arabia royalties for yeah. you. Um, <laughs> but I'd, Anne would sort of interrupt Tony and I's story sessions with, what did we all use before Zoom? Skype. Um, <laughs> and we'd get, and <laughs> but she would call... 
and she's a genius. You know, she she is a great, great editor. Her last credit, by the way, was Fifty Shades of Grey. She was ninety one. Wow! And, uh, I somehow and didn't was, know that. The, she was not cheating. She was cutting the soft core. Yeah. Porn. But wow. um, she would just cut in. Uh, she'd beep in, and it would be like anybody's mom. <laughs> like, and she'd say, "Oh, Tony, Tony, I forgot where you know, I forgot where I put the butter or something." <laughs> and, he'd be, and he'd be screaming, "Mom, mom, Peter! Oh, hello, Pete." Peter, fuck off. We're working on the story. And it just it was so quotidian and normal. It was like, oh yeah, right, it's been mate's mom. And then you think, <laughs> he cut from the match to the sunset. This is the legendary Ann Coates bothering her son, who treated her just <laughs> like a mom, you know. That's great. Mom, mom, stop it. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so yeah, so the look of it ultimately, obviously, Tony's responsible, and yeah, it, it looks great, moves fast. Mm-hmm. I, you mentioned earlier, Josh, about you know it might have been the first one. I had, you don't have to answer this if it's embarrassing, but um, the number of people I've met who are as much younger than me as you are was the main appeal, Paula Marshall, because I meet an awful <laughs> lot of guys in the. I don't know how old you are. Early Very 40s. Young. Maybe, maybe you were pre-pubescent. But the number of people I meet in their 40s who say, yeah, yeah, hold on. Paula Marshall. <laughs> first crush. They love her. So mm-hmm. you don't have to answer it. But I, but I wonder if that was part of the appeal for you as, as a as I mean, a I won't part. lie. I, I do think, uh, and this is why with a lot of those franchises that kind of got funnier as they went along, I think it was also kind of like at that age, I was still at the cusp where I was watching these serious R rated movies, but the first two seemed like not even just scary, like Hellraiser one and two, the clips I would see seemed like just disturbing to me. And I guess because it was that, that let Freddy Krueger element in part three, I was like, Oh, this one just looks like fun. This one looks like fun. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I saw Hellraiser three in the theaters, I, I, yeah, I, I loved her, and then I was happy to see her in Warlock, the Armageddon, and full of clay. I was like, yeah, I was like absolutely. happy. He was like using her all the time. Sure. We're going to hit pause right here and pick things back up in our next episode as we continue our conversation about the original version of Hellraiser 4 with our guest, Mr. Peter Atkins. Big thanks to Peter and thanks to you guys for listening. If you'd like more content from us, you should follow us on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm and Instagram at BestMoviesNeverMade. You should also download the Electric Now app so you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts here on the Electric Surge Network. We'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge and including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying, we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.